but we started in that space um, right before the bubble burst and all that fun stuff. But we, you know, we really looked at what was the issue for farmers and what was the issue for processors. And we took all of those lessons that we learned and we just basically applied them to industrial hemp because the bottlenecks and a lot of that are in the same place. So our kind of experience was our very, very first thing we started was with the medical cannabis, looking at it in Vermont, immediately realized that it just wasn't gonna work for us, you know, legislation. Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. Hello. I love watching those commercials. Just saying it reminds me of everything throughout the year. It makes me laugh and see all the guests and how many times I'm on the phone or pointing and, and it cracks me up. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Travis, so much. I'm so excited to have you. I'm excited today, you guys, because Travis has a background on the farm from farm and processing um, seed cells or seed production, I guess. No, not Experience. Acquisition, I think, is more more appropriate. A, a good understanding, let's say. Yes. There you go. Perfect. So we've got lots of opportunity to ask great questions. Um, whether you're listening now or you catch this later on the replay, uh, make sure that you like, share. We want to make sure that we get content out. There is a bunch of interviews, a bunch of new interviews that are being published right now on our YouTube channel. So check it out and be sure that you subscribe there. And then I want to give a really big thank you to everybody and everything that you guys are doing within the industry, uh, really pushing to not give up, to keep working. We keep talking about this great big opportunity, and it really is just a matter of meeting the opportunity, um, you know, as it's coming down the pipeline. And so I want to kind of talk about what that looks like, what that looks like specifically in Vermont, uh, where you're at, Travis. So before I keep rambling on, um, I encourage you guys, ask any questions, jump in, add questions, even if you are listening later on. And we'll make sure that we get them over to Travis, make sure you're connected. But Travis, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got into this industry. Sure. Hi, everyone. And thank you, Mandy, for having me and kind of doing all that you do. I've yeah. you know, kind of tangentially been a part of the association for a while, sat in on some meetings, and it's what you're yeah. doing is great. And we, we appreciate it from our end as processors, producers, you know, trying to bring everything together in the market. Um, as Mandy said, my name is Travis Samuels. I am the co-owner and COO of Zion Growers. Um, we are located in northern Vermont, um, but we have kind of two facilities we are currently upfitting um, this coming season. Um, we are looking at about 250 acres for this coming season of industrial hemp planted. Um, we are, from early estimates, really the only people doing it privately um, in the state of Vermont and in kind of the area. Um, and that's, you know, goes back to why we are doing what we are. Um, we kind of started as a CBD uh, processor storage. You know, we started in that space um, right before the bubble burst and all that fun stuff. But we, you know, we really looked at what was the issue for farmers and what was the issue for processors. And we took all of those lessons that we learned and we just basically applied them to industrial hemp because the bottlenecks and a lot of that are in the same place. So our kind of experience was our very, very first thing we started was with the medical cannabis, looking at it in Vermont, 
immediately realized that this just wasn't going to work for us. You know, legislation, legalization, all of that in Vermont was kind of we we literally just gotten our first um, our first dispensaries and stores. So we would have been waiting quite a while. Um, and we pivoted into CBD, and right around the time that that all kind of went bubble burst, um, we were able to kind of pivot and move on to our next piece and take all of that knowledge and you know, start looking at how do we make industrial hemp a real commodity for farmers in the state? And what would that look like if we wanted to expand the market and work with people to really get these raw products out? And what was the marketing, you know, even looking like at that point? Um, so it's kind of been a slow progression from, you know, cannabis to CBD to industrial hemp and kind of finding our footing. But it's you know a growth of understanding all of those different markets and kind of how we got to here and making sure that we avoid all of the pitfalls that, you know, would have led us kind of down the wrong path previously. Um, so, you know, we're excited to be where we are. We have a facility opening um, this year in Proctor, Vermont. Um, that's going to be our first one. We are working with um, Formation Ag to get the Fibertrack 660 from them. Um, and then we are working with International Hemp out of Colorado um, for all of our seed. Um, this year, we'll be working with Valley uh, Stock Farms, um, our kind of fan of farming manager slash farmer is uh, Janet Curry who works there. Um, great lady to be working with and we are really excited for uh, what this season is going to bring. Exciting. Okay, so you had said, maybe I misunderstood you, you have two locations? Yeah, so we originally had a location uh, where I am now in St. Johnsbury. This is where I grew up and went to high school. Um, and in the process of upfitting that and preparing that, it's an older industrial site. Um, part of what we've done here is focus on, you know, existing buildings, um, kind of in the state of Vermont, older turn of the century industrial buildings that have kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, so we basically looked at it and say, you know, we could always build new. There's always that opportunity. But how do we kind of work within the communities um, that we are in? And that's, you know, kind of another you know, offshoot of what we're doing is community development, because it's something that's really needed here in Vermont as far as industry goes. Um, so working with that, we ended up with a large building, um, used to be known as the I building. It's been in the family for like eight, nine, 10 generations. Okay. Um, and they used to do a lot of different stuff. Um, it used to be, you know, animal feed. They used to do coal bins, stuff like that. Um, so we ended up purchasing that building from, um, the court, the Ide corporation, um, a man named Mr. Timothy Ide, who has grandkids, um, in the area. So he, they're like 11th or 10th generation, um, but that buying of that building and kind of the work that goes into that, um, it's got some environmental problems. It's got, you know, it, it needs a lot of cleaning. There's been like 50 different things in that building over the last 50 years. And it's like, you know, a skate prior, park, a bowling pin maker. The, yeah, prior to all the regulations that are in place for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's some contamination um, to say the least. But, you know, the state has been great. We've gotten money from the state to kind of clean that up. And because they want it done and we want this property and the town wants it done, you know, it, it's really a, a holistic approach to fixing it. Um, while in the process of setting that up, we were approached by uh, the Preservation Trust of Vermont, um, who had basically taken ownership of a, of a building in Proctor, Vermont. Um, it used to be an old marble cutting facility. Um, they used to employ about a thousand people a day. The whole building is about 170,000 square feet. Uh, give or take. Um, and they really, in the same kind of vein as the building here in St. Johnsbury, had a large building with a couple of people renting out of it. But as far as an industrial site, it kind of sat barren. Um, the Vermont Marble Museum is currently located there, and we will be working with them so they can continue to operate as kind of one of the tenants. 
Um, but we are taking over the building as the anchor tenant, and we'll be using that as an additional facility in the south. Um, so we'll be about two hours apart in uh, kind of northern Vermont and southern Vermont. And as some of the listeners may know, you know, the logistics of industrial hemp and the processing is kind of the whole piece of it. So it allows us to work with multiple parts of the state um, kind of right off the bat so we can reach everybody and really make this um, accessible to farmers. Okay, so will there be processing in both? You'll, you'll actually install decortication equipment in both facilities? That is our intention. Um, Proctor is going to be kind of the start. Um, St. Johnsbury had been our initial focus, but the uh, environmental cleanups has just been more than we expected. Um, but, you know, over the long run, yeah, we, we completely expect to have both facilities up and running. Um, it just it makes a lot of sense from what we've seen as far as how everything works logistically from shipping and moving things around. Um, we've also looked at a lot of rail as both of our facilities are actually located on rail lines. Um, and kind of how we can incorporate that into what we're doing and kind of cut those costs even more for ourselves and our customers. Um, and, you know, everyone's trying to, I know there's a whole thing around rail. I have my own thoughts on rail right now. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, we already have the infrastructure. It just needs needs a little love, maybe a little help. Um, but I think it's a, a super viable option for, you know, when we're talking about moving, you know, thousand pound bales of around bales of industrial hemp, I think there's something to be said about what we can do transportation that wise, um, as opposed to, you know, your standard flatbed trucking. So cool. What a, what a good opportunity you've got in front of you. Okay. So can you talk to me then we talked about, like you said, this, uh, proximity or distance from the processors. Talk to me about scale. Obviously we understand, or I understand a little bit more about formations equipment and kind of what capacity looks like, but can you talk to talk to that and what you're looking at as far as farm size. Um, I know you had mentioned a farm partner, you know, how are you penetrating markets? You know, what does that look like as far as getting farmers to grow? What crops might you be competing with? Things like that. Sure. So we, um, you know, it's, it's been kind of a struggle in the early aughts where we were coming from the transition from CBD. Yeah. Um, Vermont was hit especially hard. Um, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I know there are a lot of farms here that saw this as an opportunity to get back on their feet. You know, dairy hasn't been what it was in this state for a long time. And that's kind of what we're known for. Um, it's either that or corn or hay. Um, and diversifying has become super important as dairy has kind of fallen off. So we are in kind of direct competition um, with corn. But as a, you know, as a rotational crop, it actually works really well. And that's something we've been trying to really explain to farmers that you can rotate it, but it can also be as profitable, if not more so, um, than corn. So if you look at you know corn data over the last couple of years, uh, let's say 2010 to 2020, corn prices were at you know a decade low for a long time. Around 2020, 2021, um, things started to go all over the place and corn prices rose. So around last year, corn prices started to go up. So we lost a lot of the acreage that we'd had planned because you know Vermont is a a farming community, but a dairy community. So all these guys have been doing corn for the last 80 years. They know their markets, they know their money, they know where they can get it. And I, I would be remiss if I said that they were, weren't doing anything wrong. They were doing anything wrong because their businesses, their farmers, they have to support themselves. Um, so it has been my job to really make it make sense for them. Um, for our farmer, um, for Valley Stock Farms this year, we're providing all the seed up front. Um, and that's something we've kind of worked out for them to kind of help cover their costs. Uh, it's been a kind of a struggle to find insurance for this for farmers. 
um, really get them some kind of governmental backing to say, you know, if anything goes wrong, we can support you. And that's been kind of the struggle as well is finding more support for farmers to grow the crop. You know, although subsidies, some of the other crops get, we just don't see for farmers uh, for emerging crops. Um, it's something that I have been trying to reach out to people about for, because the farm bill is coming back up again. Um, and I think it's something that should really be inserted in there um, to make sure this is a realistic commodity for people to grow. So our, you know, our expansion and what we're looking to do allows us to work with all of these farmers, make it make sense for them. Um, we can directly compete with corn as far as pricing for corn. Um, you're looking anywhere from 700 to 900 bucks, uh, you know, an acre on average. For us, um, we're looking at 840 to $1,100 an acre, um, depending on, you know, obviously volume. Um, but for what we've been able to find, about 8,000 pounds per acre dried is what most farmers can expect here. Um, and that, you know, beets or matches industrial, um, beets or matches corn. But I think the, the growth of the market for industrial hemp will see that outpace corn by a lot very soon. Okay, so as we talk about this and talk about subsidies, I took some notes. I've got all kinds of questions I want to come back to. But um, carbon, how much is the carbon credit a topic of conversation for farmers? Um, it's been in a larger topic, but it, it's not really something we're finding that kind of gains a lot of traction as far as getting them to grow. Um, it's it's a great idea, and there's a lot of potential for it, but I don't think that is they don't see that as an impetus for them to grow or that that's, you know, enough backing for them to really say, yeah, we can go, we can go in on this and those will cover, you know, our concerns moving forward. Um, I think there's a lot to that. And I think there's a lot of benefit in looking at it moving forward. I just don't think it has the boots on the ground feel that some of the farmers are looking for to say, you know, we are supporting you wholeheartedly in trying this new endeavor. Yeah. 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 Okay, so I the carbon conversation keeps coming up, right, especially as we've been global and because there is so much pressure on a global scale that I don't feel like we feel as much here yet. Um, and so it's definitely slower, but I feel like it is coming down the pipeline as a potential opportunity to be a subsidy or an additional source of revenue as we are adding hemp specifically to a rotation or within into a, a crop, crop rotation. I think there's definitely a lot... A lot there. I mean, you, you hear about some of the larger companies buying carbon, like large amounts of carbon credits, um, you know, externally outside the U.S. And that kind of rolls back into it all. It, it all kind of levels out the playing field. You know, if you're you know adding carbon in America and we buy carbon credits somewhere else in the world, that, that all kind of balances out. Um, and I, I like the idea. I think there's a little more that needs to be looked at there as far as how that exactly works. Um, but I think as far as a benefit to people trying to get them extra money to do things, I think there's definitely um, uh, something there to work with. I'm a, a little dubious about it, but, you know, that's that's I'm with, you. I'm with you. And this is why I bring it up. Right. Is I hear it. And so it's you can't ignore it. It's coming down. You know, you're seeing countries that are putting you know, they're going to be carbon neutral by a certain date or they were no longer going to be using gas cars and electric cars. And so it's definitely conversation. Um, but I'm with you that there is the reality is, is who it's going to affect and or benefit. Right. Is our farmers. And so where where do they stand with this? And, and is this something that as a hemp business is a viable option in order to encourage farmers to grow? And if it's not, it's just not right. What does work and what is what is available. And so, yeah, I appreciate having the conversation and I appreciate the reality of 
you know, what topic is, but I do like it every day. There is a conversation or somebody or a group that is interested or already trading credits. And so I think that, you know, on the private market, it, it is potentially something that can really benefit. And you look at the, you know, the focus around the climate smart commodities, where it's, whether it's carbon itself or, you know, something else tracking that. Are you guys doing any tracking of, of carbon and soil and, you know, what does that look like for your guys? We haven't really grown to that point yet where we're kind of tracking all of those little pieces. Um, we are really just trying to, you know, get ourselves up and rolling and get all of our equipment in and really make sure we have everything nailed down. Um, but I think that's something we're definitely going to look at moving forward is how can we, you know, maximize that as a benefit for us. Um, as I'll try and keep my tangent here light is the idea of the carbon credits from a personal standpoint only bothers me because the idea that I can purchase credits and that allows me to somehow pollute and that all that balances out seems a little, you know, it's like we are carbon negative, but only because we have purchased credits from somebody else. We haven't actually changed our policies or how we operate. I totally agree with you. I totally, it's, it is this, is this a setup for more greenwashing? Right. Yeah. I 100% agree. But like you said, if we can pay our farmers or get a revenue back to the farmers due to the stream of, you know, the, the transfer of carbon credits, I think that it could potentially be. I just I, I'm with you. There's lots of questions. I'm not an expert. At it. We talk about it a lot. But yes. <laughs> well, exactly. And I, I think that kind of goes back, especially when we're talking about something that's supposed to be carbon negative or car not carbon negative, but you know, it's supposed to be a, a net benefit as far as the planet is concerned. I think that we need to be focusing on being more beneficial than trying to fix what we're already doing and kind of leveling out the playing field. But I mean, the other thing is making sure that money while we are doing that gets all the way down to farmers that, you know, the people who the process starts with are actually seeing the money from these carbon credits and they're not kind of getting cut out of that deal. Um, because they, we need the farmers. We can't do this without farmers. And the idea that we can just factory farm everything, it, it, it leaves a lot to be desired for communities like mine, where, you know, everyone just kind of owns their own farm. Everyone has a couple thousand acres or a couple hundred acres. It doesn't, you know, those kind of things don't speak as loudly to people as it does when it's like, yeah, we're going to come in, we're going to help you on the ground level, make sure you have the money to, you know, grow and provide and just pay your bills, you know, pay your taxes. Um, we we want to get outside and be like, oh, we're making all this money and the market's all great. But if you have farmers who are still losing their houses and their barns and their farms, it doesn't really equate to success in my eyes. Right, right. I 100% I agree, right? This goes back to taking care of our farmers and making sure that it's profitable. And reality is, and I mean, and I say this a lot, right? Our industry or our people, not our industry, um, the world is so disconnected from where their food comes from or from where the, you know, the, the value of the soil. Kiss the Ground is a perfect, you know, video to watch that really talks about the value of the soil. And thank you to everybody that's been, you know, rotating crops and using practices and, you know, thanks to our farmers. And big shout out to our farmers. Um, so I don't want to keep going. I want, we could get on a carbon topic and it's not where I want to go. I really want to talk Talk to me about sowing density. You know, when you when you're talking about eight thousand pounds per acre, um, so at four tons per acre, ish. We are doing, um, yeah, roughly four tons per acre. But as far as seeding rates, 
Um, our germination on our seed came back at about 80 to 85 percent. Um, so we planted about 50 to 55 uh, pounds per acre, pounds of seed per acre, roughly. Um, How many seeds is that? Seeds is pretty, I could look up. I know their seed count. Per acre. Sorry, I, it's like, um, pounds I want to say acre. it's like 50,000 pounds of seed or 50,000 seeds per acre or something like that. The, the, okay. I don't, I never remember. I always, my, the easiest way for me to remember is pounds of seed per acre. Um, but it's, it, that kind of equates to that, um, 8,000 to 10,000 pounds, but it, it really depends because we had a drier summer last year and we definitely didn't see the kind of growth across the field that we were hoping for. Um, we definitely saw it in the kind of the drainage areas of the farm where we saw those eight to 10 foot plants. Um, in the center of the field, we were really hitting that six to eight foot kind of in their area, um, you know, some five foot in some areas. But I, I think it proved to us that what we had assumed going into it was exactly right. Um, and that you can kind of meet the levels that we assumed you could going in. And even our, for our germination, you know, we actually in some places saw higher germination than we expected. Um, it, it looked like about 100% germination from kind of what me and the farmers discussed. Um, and we actually did uh, seven inch rows for our planting. So we did seven inch rows, um, about a quarter inch deep. And we just used a soybean planter that did 15 inch rows. And then we went back across and did seven inch rows. Um, and that, you know, that worked great because another part of this is, you know, what do you have? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Drill or disc? Uh, I believe these were discs. I believe it was a disc mower. Um, I say that, but now I'm like, <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head. It might have been a seed drill. Um, but I know it was, I know the original impetus for it was the use of it was for soy, um, for soybeans. But it was, I believe it was, I want to say it was a disc planter, but I can't be sure. But it, again, it was, you know, we were looking for the smallest rows possible. Um, my thought process was something in the three to four range, but as I've been told multiple times, there's no seed planter that's going to get me those. Um, so it, it's funny after we kind of did that, we got the seven inch rows and everything was planted. What we noticed when we started to get immersion was where he had actually emptied out the cedar. We had hundred percent, you know, immersion germination in those areas. So something we want to look at, and it was a concern, you know, for bird predation, um, germination rates, you know, seed getting damaged, what it would actually look like. But I think we actually got a better stand in the areas where the seed are dumped and we got um, just broadcast as opposed to what we got in the ground. So it, it's something else we want to look at as well. Kind of how does that work? What can we get the most out of? Because if I can scatter shot, you know, an entire field, my immersion rate is still the same we're going to get much better stands. Um, and if we're talking about herd, you know, we want more density and more height to kind of keep those stocks in that reasonable um, diameter to make it easier to process down the road. Okay. So easier to process down the road. What is that? What is the ideal size of stock and, and diameter on processing? And what does end market look like? When I was asking like pounds per acre, pounds in this industry is pretty tricky because Sometimes there's 17,000 seeds, sometimes there's 80,000 seeds or 60,000 seeds. And so I'm trying to figure out kind of like what is sowing density, you know, and how does that affect stock size, right? Um, especially moving into uh, your equipment. So, yeah. Sure. So I, I can say that from what you're looking at as far as stock density is about, you know, about the size of my finger right here, if not a little bigger. Um, mm -hmm. 
can kind of see. I have rather, rather large hands, so maybe this is a bad example. No, but, I got um, you, yeah. but but about the size of my finger, and that's you know for um, processing, it makes it a little little easier. Um, it also degrades the fiber less. So if you have you know more space, your stocks are going to grow a little thicker. You're going to get a little better fiber. Um, but it is also harder to process those larger stocks. Um, you know, you start getting to 15 foot stocks with diameters bigger than my thumb. Um, and, you know, that going through your equipment, um, whether it be from your disc combine or the actual processing, um, you know, the coricator itself, those can be harder on the machine overall. So there is kind of a sweet spot, depending on what you're doing, at least from what we're looking to do, um, where, you know, eight to 10 feet is kind of the max as far as what we want to put through. Um, we use, just used a disc mower um, to cut everything down. So, you know, as we were talking, um, the farmer we work with, his name is Jeff. He was going through and he's like, these are great. No, but if they were any taller, or any thicker, I think I might get a lot more wrapping and issues going on. Um, so that's that was another piece of it. Um, but really looking at the way we can narrow that down as much. So if we're, we are going for herd and fiber kind of, I consider it dual cropping. Most people don't, but you know, if you're early on, I guess it wasn't more so now that people are realizing that it's not really just about the seed and the herd or seed and the fiber. Um, my always thought was it, you know, we have most of the percentage is based around herd. Fiber is a great thing, but herd, you know, that's where your mass comes from. That's where most of your stock is. So we have to figure out how we can use that. So we've built kind of around, you know, getting as much herd and fiber as we can. Um, and kind of worrying about you know, looking at seed and things like that later on down the road. But how do we maximize that? So that's kind of how our, our seed rows, our density for planting and all of those things kind of take effect because we're looking for skinnier, taller stocks, which means a higher planting density um, per acre. But harvesting where the, because you're not harvesting young, you're harvesting where you, you've got a full herd, like herd stock or a, a solid stock. Yep. So talk to me about end markets, right? There's a lot of discussion getting into this, making sure you know where your end market is going and processing affects what that end market is. Um, yeah, what does this look like for you guys and where are you, yeah, where are you headed? So um, most of what we're looking at, obviously, as I was kind of saying before, is based around the herd market. Um, yeah. When we, when I kind of started looking for customers, there wasn't too many people into plastics as there is now. Um, so as I've kind of talked to people, you know, they're always, everyone raves about plastic contracts and I'm like, okay, so that's, you know, something we're looking at a little more moving forward and with the formation ag equipment, we can get there. Um, but most of my conversations have been around larger bulk orders for, you know, sized herd for construction materials, animal bedding, stuff like that. Um, a couple people in Vermont have actually approached me since learning about us that are trying to do, you know, a Vermont hemp based building company. Um, there's a gentleman here who wants to do like bags for guitars and, um, skateboards and stuff like that. And then there's a gentleman here who's actually making, um, industrial hemp, um, guitars. He makes the full body of the guitar for resins and stuff like that. Um, just, you know, amazing things that these people are just looking for raw material for. So uh, what we always assumed would be part of this is that we're going to have to start outside the state, right? We are mostly biggest customers are drop shipping for some people out West, essentially that are just looking for bulk orders. Um, so we, you know, we take their orders and we ship it out for them. So that's where a large portion of our initial market is gonna be. Um, but looking forward, it's you know, how can we support local entities and local markets in Vermont and kind of grow those as well. So it's an out, you know, we're working outwards in, um, but I think that you know, where our market mostly lies is gonna be in those 
you know, larger bulk orders, people looking to build houses, people looking to do plastics, um, people looking to do, you know, insulation baths, green construction materials, things like that. Um, we're not going to get too crazy uh, as far as manufacturing on our end. We're just focusing on raw product. Um, but as we kind of build, you know, that whole vertical integration as far as what we manufacture and what we pump out, you know, whether it be uh, actually spinning industrial fiber all the way to, you know, spinnable fiber that you can actually use. That's something we want to get into as well as, you know, plastics actually making the binders and making the plastics moving forward. Um, but that's all, you know, kind of down the line market. Um but really just those bulk orders that we're trying to get out and get us up and running again um, so we can kind of find our feet. Uh, awesome. Okay, so processing. Um, for those that don't understand decortication, right, I, can you kind of go over what the basic process looks like for you and then maybe what additional processing you guys are considering or have added on, um, you know? Yeah. So the... Um, what I was talking about earlier, the, the fiber track 660 comes from Formation Ag in Colorado. Great guys. Um, that machine basically is a modular system that has a couple different pieces to it. So we like it because it kind of does everything in one. Um, so the, the whole process basically starts with um, a bale and roller. So you insert round bales, kind of same kind of way you do with um, hay for people to kind of give you the one for one, those giant field marshmallows you always see. Um, kind of about that size. The infeed um, unrolls the bale and then it goes through what's a what's called the decorticator, the main piece. And it's essentially a set of sets of rollers with teeth that go through and they start the breaking process that separates the inner herd from the outer fiber. And the whole rest of the system is basically set up to do further separation and cleaning. So the fiber gets conditioned, you remove all the excess herd. Um, the processing should get it to a two percent or less. Um, contamination of herd and fiber. So, you know, 2% less um, fiber in your herd and vice versa. So the fiber process is a little simpler. It's really the separation. We're kind of conditioning the fibers um, and then they, you know, come out the end. For the herd, it can go through multiple processes. So it's the separation and then you have the additional cleaning and then you have um, sizing of the herd. So if you're looking for specs for, you know, building or animal bedding, it's going to be different than it is for, say, something like plastics, where it has to be hammer built down to uh, what's called micronized material or almost a fine sand. So we're able to kind of hit all of those markets size to whatever spec our customers are looking for, and we can be, um, you know, adjustable to whatever the market is bringing. Awesome. 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 Okay. Um, how do people get in touch? If people are wanting to build relationship, work together, buy product, farm for you. Yeah, what does that look like? Sure. Um, so the best way to get a hold of us right now is through either my LinkedIn, um, which is down there in the chat, um, Travis Samuels, or you can email us at ziongrowers at gmail.com or my um, personal email or my personal business email, which is tnws21 at gmail, which is in the chat as well. Um, we are working on a revamp of our website. We've currently closed our previous website. Um, so if anybody's looking for us, ziongrowers.com is not our website currently. Um, I believe it's been bought and is run by some kind of phishing website, as I've been told. So heads up to everybody. That is, that is what that website is. That is not us. Um, we will be kind of announcing as our relaunch of our website that's going to kind of coincide with our opening um, of our Proctor facility. Uh, so, you know, we'll keep a lookout for that. Um, 
But as we kind of get up and running, our, our social media presence will kind of grow. We've just been kind of focusing on the nuts and bolts of things before we, you know, display too much. I understand. Okay, Darwin's got a great question here. How do you measure your herd? Um, measure it for diameter or measure it for height would be my question. I, I'm not quite sure which, what you're looking for there, Darwin. Um, but I mean, it's really just going out in the field um, around harvest time. So we, what you know, we processed. Like, what about the specs around the processed material? Ah, um, well, it's really, you know, it, it goes through a hammer mill and you'll, you'll find this with pretty much everyone who processes. Um, it's a hammer mill and screening process. Uh, what instruments, instrumentation yeah. and test methods do you use? Um, well, we're really just measuring diameter at this moment. You know, we're looking for, it, it's kind of a, a site thing for us for the most part. We're looking at diameter. We're looking at, you know, seed propagation towards the end of the year because we don't want this to go to seed because then you start to degrade your fiber. So we are really looking at, you know, how tall is it getting? What can we do to fix that? You know, what is our diameter? What time of year are we looking to harvest to make sure we can hit um, so we can maximize what we're getting out of the crop for the farmer, as well as at the same time, making sure we're not degrading the fiber by letting it go all the way to seed. Um, so post hard. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I wanted to say, Darwin, I don't know if he was on in the beginning when we were talking that your facility will be opening soon and you haven't actually pushed product through for processing material yet. And so I would imagine most of your, most of the questions around material measurements will come within this next year or two. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I mean, from working with, like I said, from working with Formation Ag based on, you know, the samples and supplies we've been able to get from them and what they're able to do, um, we can pretty much meet whatever spec people are looking for. Um, so it, it's, I guess it's, uh, oh, can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Lost my video for there for a second. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll be able to meet spec based on, you know, kind of what we've looked at with Formation Ag and the equipment. Um, but you know, we will be growing into that kind of, as we go, as we get the equipment in and start processing, um, be able to answer a couple more of those questions as far as what it'll actually look like. Cause you know, we, we've, we have, I have, you know, a couple bales sitting dried, waiting to be processed. I just don't have the equipment yet. Um, but I've been able to get micronized material, um, sampled from our actual harvest from last season. So we do have material that we can do with samples off the equipment. I just don't have the equipment on hand. Sure. I think this is a good question that Darwin's bringing up and something to to kind of bridge the gap, right, is what are those specs and how do we know we're meeting that spec, right? Is it, um, and, and we hear about micronized herd, but micronized to what size and to what moisture or to what, you know, what, how clean is it? Is it mold free? Is it, you know, color? What's the color look like? And so I think that those things are you know, especially being developed as we talk about material or different pieces. It's like this um, material science opportunity that we've got, you know, this IP development that's coming in materials that are being developed. But um, yeah, I think that those questions around how we're testing them and how we know that we're meeting the specs become critical as this market develops. And as you get processing, you know, as you're processing and as you're developing that piece of this business or this supply chain, I, I'd love to come back and say, you know, what do those specs look like and what do we need? I, I guess the, the way you phrased it was a little different than what I was thinking. So if yeah. we're talking about, you know, off the field, 
So when we're going, you know, after harvest, when we're going through the, the redding process, the drying process in the field, we're really looking for like a, a moisture content of, you know, 10 to 12 percent, ideally. Less than 20 percent is what we're, you know, kind of saying we are going to work with farmers because, you know, we have to be reasonable about what we're doing here and what we're expecting. So if you're drying something in a field, it can be hard, but it, it really follows along the same lines as hay. So if you're talking about, you know, cutting it down, going through the redding process of letting it sit in the field and go through the curing process where you're breaking down the pectins and lignans and you're really allowing it to quote unquote cure over that drying process. You want to get your material down to that low, you know, low teens moisture percentage, which you also, and, and, I've based this off of the samples that I had sent out from um, Formation Ag, right? They sent me samples before we had material really? and it was this nice golden color. It had, uh, I can't really describe it. it. It looked like a beautiful lay of hay, realistically. So when we were looking at harvesting, we said, how do we get that? And how do we get that coloration? Um, and we managed to achieve that and get exactly that kind of nice light hay color look without any, you know, darker discoloration on any of the bales. Um, and I think we have kind of an idea process of how that looks and how that can work. But if you're talking about spec from, you know, what. Uh oh, I lost you for just a second. See if he comes back on. Oh, no, Travis. Oh, we were right in the middle of good conversation, too. I hope it's not me. Okay, well guys, we'll see if he comes back onto this. Can you guys hear me? Is it me that's frozen? Is it Travis? Darwin, I don't know if you're still listening. Uh-oh. Okay, guys. Well, I'll give it a few more minutes and see. In the meantime, I just want to remind everybody, oh, no, we lost him. It must have been his. So anyways, it's definitely me <laughs> or it's definitely his. We'll see if he comes back on here. Oh, awesome, John. Thank you very much. Hi, Paul. Perfect. I'm so glad to, to know that we're here. Well, it's just me for now. Thanks, Chris. Uh, good to see you as well. Thank you very much for chiming in. Um, if you guys have any questions, let me know. I know he'll get back on here in just a minute. I think this is a great discussion. There are, I think Darwin again brings up a great point that I think that we should really reevaluate and or evaluate, continue to evaluate is, you know, how do we know we're meeting specs um, and what is that spec? Um, if it's if it's to a specific product, how is it being measured or an in, in material? How is it being measured? Um, I think this feeds back also, you know, there's a lot of talk about what we can make in the industry or with, with hemp, but really what I'd like to dive into is how, how are we meeting those specs? How are we, um, you know, changing the equipment we have, um, you know, what works, what doesn't, what pitfalls can we avoid? How do we bring uh, facilities together, right? So that we can, um, fulfill or not not facilities, but partners maybe, or the industry together to fulfill larger contracts. And what do we need in order to meet the spec for that contract or what modifications have to be made? So I'd really like to discuss that. Um, I'm hoping Travis gets back on here. I don't see him that he is um, or may not be, but another couple things too is NOCO. We'll be sharing our trial data at NOCO, our uh, 10 locations, um, 10 different varieties, Drew, 
Kit, um, Bert James, which I'm really excited about. He actually was not part of the team who developed or worked on the trials, but with his background and experience, and then now was able to attend one of the conferences where we pulled all of our crop consultants from for our trials. Um, but to be able to talk from a sponsor and an agronomist perspective, and then of course, Melissa Nelson, who, who um, really led our trials. We're gonna dis just discuss what worked, what didn't, uh, what we're finding um, in our varieties, uh, certified versus non-certified genetics, what yields um, were successful across multiple locations, um, and then also what didn't work. Like I really wanna dive in and, and share just from an agronomist perspective, uh, the reality of challenges with drought and um, high temperatures or uh, pesticides or herbicides and runoff. And so we'll be talking about all that. So I hope that you're there. It's on Friday afternoon. Um, yeah, I'd love to. And then as a member of Global Hemp Association, starting in the end of, of April, we'll be sharing all of our trial data with all of our members, all of our sponsors that had their trial data, um, everything that's been collected um, back in, I think, December is when we were able to to put compile it all and get it from our consultants. And so um, this next year, we're still fundraising to see if we're gonna be able to pull trials off. So I really encourage the support. I wanna say thank you uh, to all of our sponsors so far. Hi, John, it's good to see you. Hi, Paul, thanks very much for joining. Um, and then for future interviews and future meetings, um, we're really gonna start leveling up and start doing some unique types of roundtables and discussions. And so Travis is back, I'm really excited. But, um, I completely <laughs> lost Wi-Fi. I'm in a public library. I somehow completely lost Wi-Fi. Had to go to my phone, so I apologize about that. <laughs> That's okay, I just kept rambling. It doesn't happen very often that I have to do that. But uh, I, I just wanna say real quick to, to go over to our, our uh, events page on our website, globalhempassociation.org or friendsofhemp.org, where it has all of our upcoming meetings and events and watch out for some new Q&A and roundtable discussions. I'd love to have you guys involved. Um, so Trav, yeah, you want to take it off? <laughs> yeah, I, I will be honest. I kind of lost count of where we were. What was the last thing we were talking about? I, I got a little flustered there. I was like, no, nothing's working. I did too, so it's okay. I actually was worried it was me, but everybody's like, no, we can hear you, Andy. <laughs> so <laughs> I know better. Um, we were talking about measurements, like just the reality of where in order for us to meet big contracts or for in order for us to collaborate between facilities or even within one state having multiple processes, you know, how do we meet those specs and what does that look like so that we can scale industry so that we can say, I know I can meet it because here's how I'm measuring it, right? Or here's what we're doing. Um, and so, yeah, we were kind of talking about measurement from the farm perspective, because I think those are two different types, right? SOP at the farm and, you know, what that looks like and how much the farm impacts, especially color or mold, right? That's a huge play when we look at auto industry or non-woven industry. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, that's kind of where we were. <laughs> so, yeah. So the, the biggest thing, as I said, that the discoloration is something we really focused on. So when I was looking for customers and I was kind of asking around, you know, where do you get your product? What's the spec look like? How, you know, what do you, what do you need from me realistically? And what I kept hearing was that, you know, what we have in America is a very early on process. You know, this was you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago. So, you know, things have changed a little bit since then, since I kind of started this initial picking out. But what I heard a lot was, is that 
the reason that a lot of the inventory in America comes from overseas is because we haven't been able to meet it here in America. And that's for moisture content and that's for coloration. Um, moisture content, from what they were telling me at the time, you know, you're looking at 20% plus 25 to 30% moisture um, and a good amount of discoloration. And that's really what was bringing the overall quality um, of what they were finding available in the United States. It was, um, you know, I'm sure many people who are going to watch this know that a lot of material that we get in comes from overseas. You know, some of the best material people will kind of tell you comes from France, comes from Europe, what it is. Um, and I think that we really, as a, as a country, have to look at, you know, why is that? What are they doing? How are they doing it? What exactly is it that makes your herd the best herd in the world, right? And if it's a coloration standpoint, okay, that's not letting your material overwet. That's, you know, it it's, might require the farmer going out there twice a day to turn. It might require you, you know, really being, it might require two to three times a day. Um, from a farmer standpoint, that's really where it's important that we found our farmer was, you know, he was as invested as we were. It was only like a five acre plot, but he was invested enough to say, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to check it. I'm going to make sure that is exactly what he's looking for. And that was, you know, I got text messages all the time. He's always asking me, sending pictures. Does this look right? You know, is this, I was like, yeah, no, you're doing it. Like, you know, as a farmer, what what you need to do. And if I say, you know, I need this to look this moisture content and I need it to look like this and I can rel relatively explain that as it relates to hay, just, oh yeah, I have a base knowledge of that. I can immediately apply that to this and I can make it make sense to get the kind of product that you're looking for. So, you know, when I look at it, we have farmers who have been doing this for generations. Give them the tools and information they need because they already know how to farm. We're just kind of adding additional pieces to their knowledge set to make sure that they can hit the spec we need. And that's, you know, moisture content being the big one and the discoloration being the other. Um, and I think the discoloration, I mean, I know the discoloration comes from overwetting and it comes from a little bit of that molding that you see in the darker material. Um, but some industries, that's what they want, right? When, when I talk to say, yeah, some of the spinning mills, they're looking for a dark, something about that. And they, of course, are, are going to bleach it or change the color of it, right? Chemically wash it potentially. But um, yeah, there's a, it really is, is about your spec. You know, what's that in market spec? And yeah, how do you-, how do you Well, it's, it's an interesting thing that, you know, when you're talking about what they're using, it, it almost, when, you, when you're talking about, well, we, we're fine with discolored material, but we're gonna end up bleaching it. it you know what I mean? It, and I, and I get, is it something that happens in that process? Like, is that further redding that, that then causes the mold or the, when it's more likely that it's moldy, right, or dark? Is there something that happens like more lignin breakdown or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, does it yeah. soften fibers potentially? What's happening? Because I'm with you. It's not the color necessarily they're looking for, right? It's whatever happens in the process of breakdown I would assume, yeah. right? So I, I think, and this this gets a little away from what I do, right? This is a little more yeah. the, the yeah. down the down the line. But totally. what we're looking at, as far as for our materials, people who are looking to basically go from degumming to spinning it on, um, it you know it really depends because again, I don't I can't speak for anybody else or anybody else's contracts or what anybody else is doing. If you have a contract for the this kind of colored material, that is perfect. Good. I'm happy because yeah. we need everything yeah. to fill everything. Yeah. I am simply basing what I'm doing on the conversations that I had 
And from the customers that I'm looking at, they're saying, you know, we want this color, we'll take it. It looks beautiful and we'll do whatever we want with it. Um, I, I think as far as reaching a larger market, depending on what they're doing, if you're talking about shorter fibers, cottonized fibers, um, I think personally, that sounds what the market more might be closer to when you're talking about um, trying to get bleach materials and things like that. I don't know if you can do a natural woven material as much if you're talking about, you know, it's the look you're looking for. You, you want the bleach material look and that's perfect. It's fine. It goes with everything. It blends with everything. It works beautifully. Or are you trying to do a almost, you know, majority weave industrial hemp herd, in which case you kind of want that material that has been unfettered as much as possible. Um, so it's, you know, there's there's room for everyone in the pool is really what I want to say here. Because I don't want to disparage or, you know, disinterest anyone from trying this because they don't feel like they can get whatever spec they're looking for. Um, because we're oh, so early on in the process as well. And this is where opportunity is right now, right? We have this huge window of material development or product development that we're just tapping into. We know materials can be made, right? We wanna get the five or 10 off the ground and really into the market. And animal bedding is one, right? There's some groups that just crushed it at getting getting this going. Uh, mm -hmm. Global Fibers block announcement with the, the hemp blocks. That's, um, uh, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It is what we need. Yeah, the flooring. So there's lots of, lots of products, right? But I do, I think if I look at, future opportunity it is in you know what is the next decking material what is the next carpet what is the next hair you know think about like well someone someone brought up something interesting to me um because i was I, I had a conversation with a rural development group here and they were kind of wondering what we were doing and i was yeah. explaining to him all of the different things you can make and he's like could you make could you make diapers from this and i was like well it's yes. antimicrobial um, it's smell resistant, yeah. you know, in kind of the same things it does for animal bedding and having a biodegradable diaper, that would, I mean, that would be amazing, but that's not something I would have ever thought about. You know, I, single guy, yeah. I have a dog. Like, I don't think about diapers, like, let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. But it's, it's that kind of stuff that no one's really thought about yet. It's like, can we could totally do that. And then it goes on to imagine, you know, you see those like gross images of dumps and you see the gross diapers everywhere. Imagine if all of those diapers were biodegradable. Oh, yeah. So I want to give a shout out because Olaf on the Trace Femcare team uh, is a diaper expert and an ah, okay. expert. And uh, they have done incredible things on feminine hygiene products um, from a hemp from hemp. And I'm sure that they have had many of conversations about absorbance. And then there's another group um, I know within our industry that is working on absorbance um, for diapers, but also for meat trays. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, like you said, there's all of these things and each of those specs are going to be different. Right. Each of those from farm to the end, potentially. And what does that look like? And so I love that we're breaking this down and having the conversation about how you're doing it, and what's working and what's not working. Right. If somebody's coming into the industry new, what's some advice you have for them right off the bat? Um you know, and especially as yeah. you're recruiting, right, as you start to develop a footprint, you're going to get more and more interest on every aspect of this supply chain. Um, you know, so as new people are coming into you, what, yeah, what's your feedback? How do you, how do you present this to them? Start slow. <laughs> um, 
Start start slow. Uh, we we've really you know we we've bootstrapped a lot of what we're doing. Um, just myself and my co-owner are really just putting the work in and investing everything we have into this. Um, so what I would say is you know it, it's kind of the same things. You know, make sure you know what your market is. Have a really good idea of what you want to do and what you what you think you can succeed at. Originally in this process, we were like, seed is the biggest market in the country. That's where we want to go. And slowly we realized that that sounds great. And yeah, there's a ton of money to be made, but what does that require from the farmers? You know, to process, to grow, to do all of that. If they don't have the equipment, they have to buy it. You know, what does that require from us? It requires us to be able to store seed, handle seed, manage seed, make sure it doesn't mold or, you know, all of the other things that go into that. And we quickly realized like, we can't do seed. Like that, that just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Um, we have no experience with it. So it's, you know, it's completely new. So how do we, you know, okay, we can't do that. So what do we do? Bird and fiber. All right. What do we need to do from that? It really break down everything. And it, it sounds, mm-hmm. you know, it's very straightforward. You, I come from a more hospitality background. Um, I, I originally wanted to go to school to be a chef. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, I own now, a restaurant. You know, I, I own oh, a sorry, I owned a restaurant for a little while. I thought I did, I wanted the same thing. And let me tell you, I did. So I'm also There's a reason we're here, everybody. I'll say. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, it was it, it was kind of looking at how do you break down an industry, look at a market, do your market research, understand what's around you, what makes the most sense for you as a business, and build from that. Yes. Try not to get hung up. And it, it's my our favorite word we've come to pivot always be open to pivot. You know, it, you're going to have to adjust. Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to change, but you know, have a goal in mind, have an idea, have that information, but always be willing to adjust that plan to whatever you're, you know, whatever the market's giving you. Because if you get too myopic or too pigeonholed, you start trying to solve problems that you really shouldn't be trying to solve because your plan doesn't work if you do. Um, you know, we were looking at when we were doing CBD, we were actually in line to buy, you know, a house on 10 acres and we were going to use that for all of our processing. And we got lucky because the deal fell through because the housing market went through the roof and the buyer was like, oh, you guys aren't offering me enough money and pulled the deal. Best thing that ever happened to us. And I was all sad and I was like, and then the market burst and you're like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. I'm so glad we didn't buy that. So, you know, don't, don't get caught up on issues or little things. You know, it, the way I look at it is life is always going to be full of problems. You can either look at them as problems or look at them as things that you have to overcome or figure out or get around. It's, you know, it's not an issue until it completely stops you from doing. Otherwise, it's just, you know, a workaround. And even then, right, we just try again. You hit a roadblock. Well, exactly. Well, and I think I, I just want to give credit to what you just said and the the need to to pivot, right? Same with you. If at any point somebody came in and said, hey, I need millions of pounds and a contract for five, 10 years, and this is the spec, there is going to be a point where either you say, okay, we're going to pivot and make these adjustments to fulfill this contract, or we're going to be able to allow to, you know, pieces of it or collaborate with other groups or whatever that looks like to meet those, those agreements. And really, what is that? 
we still, the market is still developing. And at any point it could be Nike. It could be a shoe company to come in and say, all right, we're going to do plastic shoes, you know, and all of them are going to be made out of hemp and no, or vans is in the market, right? We have all of these retail companies that have shelf space that are identifying hemp as a material to meet their, their consumer's demand. Something we actually, the, the kind of the uh, the anecdotal story that goes how we made the, the whole pivot from CBD to industrial hemp is after kind of everything happened with CBD, um, my cousin and co-owner, Brandon, um, large guy, Brandon McFarland, great man, love him to death. He's, you know, he's as much a brother to me as anything. He's a very large man. He's about size 15 feet. So oh, yeah. he, got, he got a box, a pair of shoes. He has, he has to order shoes because no one carries size 15s. So when he ordered them, you know, there's the shipping box. There's the box the shoes come in. There's all the packaging. And looking at that, he was like, can we, can we make this from industrial? You know, can we, could we replace all of this? And that was really the, okay, well, you know, we probably could. And we started with brown paper packaging. That was really our first kind of offload. And it was like, if we can replace all Amazon boxes with industrial hemp boxes, put a smile on there and be beautiful. And we've just kind of tried to make that, that was kind of our impetus. But again, we even pivoted away from that reality of things being a little more down the road. But it was one of those things where it's like, we see a problem. How do we fix the problem or how do we supplement the problem? Um, you know, for us, I, I live in Vermont, we have, uh, fuel pellet stoves, fuel pellets, you know, as far as blending woods and making that work for homes, as far as, you know, getting away from oil and natural gases, you know, it, as, as you know, it plays into everything. So it's kind of a, a spiral effect, but it was really, how do we solve a problem and what tools do we have to get there that kind of started where we are? I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, I would love to continue this conversation. I'd like to have you back sometime. I'd love to Definitely. hear, you know, once you get equipment up and running, how it's going, how your season went with planting. Uh, maybe we can touch back. Are you doing any events or attending any live events this year? Um, we're going to try and make it out to NOCO. Um, okay. I'm not sure if we're going to make it at this point because I just kind of got our hands full with just the two of us. Um, yeah. But other than that, that's really the biggest thing. There is a Fiber Council meeting, uh, New England Fiber Council meeting. They're trying to do something along the same lines as Fiber Shed um, out west, and kind of do a similar thing here about how we can make you know things more accessible. Wool is kind of the big thing in New England, so we're you know wool, alpaca, things like that, and trying to diversify that market as well. I meant to ask you. I remember you mentioning that you guys were a heavy big in cattle and dairy. Is that right? Yeah, we um, we. Well, Vermont as a state is kind of big on that. And as dairy has kind of died, people have shifted, but it's a lot of dairy farms trying to find new footing. We've gone from just over a thousand dairy farms about a decade ago to just over 600 um, as of 2020. So, you know, trying to find a way forward for those farmers um, and people that still want to do dairy or still want to farm in the state, um, that's, that's part of why we do what we do. Okay, so um, are you at all involved with Hemp Feed Coalition, or um, are you? Do you have anybody in your in your network? I guess that's working on the animal feed portion. Just because I look at, like, if we're looking at overhead costs for farmers, especially in the dairy industry, right? Is yep. hemp, and I know that there's a lot of concern about pass through for milk, and so there's a lot of. But yeah, if you know, if we've got a state and groups that are establishing, it just adds to the demand and the need and the voice and so 
Yeah. I, it's funny because I've heard all the, the talk about, well, we're concerned about, you know, if we have dairy cows eating hemp seed, you know, THC. My thought, my first thought was, I don't see a problem. We just market it. We That's how we market it. It's hemp seed milk. You know, find, find right. a way around it because it makes more sense to me. I but wish I, the I understand like the. That. Yeah, yeah. FDA doesn't think that. <laughs> I know, and that's but that to me is the craziest part because you're thinking about we feed our animals now mostly corn. Corn is a filler; has no nutritional benefits whatsoever. This is oh, yeah. widely agreed upon. We changed a quarter of that to industrial hemp seed. You know, what is the, what does that look like? What can that do for us? What can that do for the animals? What does that do for the planet? And it goes back to the earlier conversation I was having about subsidies. <laughs> So we subsidize corn, it goes in as filler, it fills up all our products and things like that. Why couldn't we switch that over and give subsidies to farmers to grow something that has an actual net benefit for all, you know, the entire food chain from top to bottom? Yep, uh, you're, exactly. I think this is the <laughs> that Feed Coalition is after is trying to open market because of the impact it has on our agriculture industry. Like, I'm, I was so taken back when I learned of the facts that animals on large feedlots are consuming less when fed hemp and gaining more with better fat profiles, right? Fatty profiles. But just is like, when you calculate that at the value long-term and what it does for a farmer, especially a large scale farmer, it's mind blowing. I mean, you, you would be able to then, you know, as someone from who came from you know culinary, if you're talking about a marbling profile of your beef and the fat profile of your beef, and it's higher because of the feet. Like when we look at Wagyu beef, best beef in the world, the marbling is one of the most important parts of that. It's what's fed to the cow and how the cow is cared for. Yep. Care for the cow in America, we can say a lot about how that could go either way. But if we're just talking about fixing the feed portion, that can go so far for the actual value of the product that we're talking about further down the line. Right. You know, which, you know it, it's the same thing with everything. You look at what you put in and it, you know, what you get out and you got to kind of weigh the cost benefit of that. And I think there's too much of a net benefit not to subplant some kind of feed program. You know, for chickens, it's the same thing. There's a lot of data for the higher omega-3s for their eggs um, when being fed industrial hemp seed. You know, it, Wade, I agree with you. Hemp feed is the future. <laughs> hemp <Yep>. feed <laughs> Hemp fed life. That's the truth. Um, but I do, you know, this goes back. We've got to support the Hemp Feed Coalition. We've got to support some of the initiatives because the amount of research that is required is years worth. And each application is extremely expensive and time consuming. And so being able to contribute there. So anybody that's listening that has access to, um, you know, that is involved in um, or interested in getting involved in any of those studies, I encourage you guys to reach out to them. Also, I want to give a shout out to the hemp exemption before we sign off. Uh, for those that are interested, you know, looking into or those that are, um, you know, growing, involved in the industry, the value of really putting separation from the fiber and grain uh, and cannabinoids to allow for scalability for things like that. I really encourage, I'll share the link here in just a second, but please, um, yeah, look into them, support them. It really is about scaling industry and reducing or mitigating risk for farmers so that allows them, you know, a better chance of being successful and and being able to scale industry. So Travis, thanks again so much for joining. I'd love to meet you. If you are out at NOCO, um, I'd love to connect. I'd love to you know, sit down and have lunch or shake your hand at the very least. And then when Most I'm out traveling, 
you know, when you get up and running, I'd love to come out and visit your farms and fields and, you know, say hello, do some press. And so, yeah. Yeah, we'd love to have you. We are, you know, we're really excited. And the, the whole building is kind of a, a industrial slash business park space. So we are, you know, we're really integrating with everything that's going on. So there should be a, a good a good thing to kind of walk through and look over when you do come. Well, I love it. When you're ready, I'd love to do a farm day out there. Let's show it yeah, off. Most definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> and our, our partner, Janet Curry, would be more than happy. She's a lovely lady. So she'd love to show us around. I love that. Yes, yes. Okay, well, let's connect again. Again, if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to Travis. His contact information is in the chat or will be shared on our website here in a couple of days. Um, and then on our YouTube channel, Global Hemp Association. Uh, other than that, you guys, thank you so, so much for joining. Thanks for all of your support. And we'll see you tomorrow at same time. I interviewed John Lupian, um, who is heavily involved in developing equipment and getting processing going as well. So it's exciting to hear more and more people coming online. A anyway, Travis, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Thank you as well. And thank you, everyone. Take care. See you later.